Hello and welcome everybody to episode 140 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. This episode, we bring you an exclusive interview with uh, the man of the hour in the global gold mining industry. That's Mark Bristow. He's the president and CEO of Barrett Gold. Mark is interviewed by senior staff writer Trish Saywell at our Canadian Mining Symposium held at Canada House in London in late May. Trish and Mark talk about some personal anecdotes and then get into his taking the helmet bare at gold in January and what is meant for the company's approach to asset development. This podcast is sponsored by the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's a group of explorers, developers, and miners with advanced properties in the Yukon Territory. Take a look at their website at yukonminingalliance.ca and follow their Twitter feed at at investyukon, all one word. We'll take a little musical break, and then we'll come back with our group publisher, Anthony Vaccaro, introducing Trish Saywell and Mark Bristow at our Canadian Mind Symposium. Um, next, we have Trish Sewell. She'll be sitting down with the CEO of Barrick, Mark Bristow. So I've already introduced Trish this morning, but for those who need a refresher, Trish is a senior staff reporter for the Northern Miner and also now the leader of TNM Leaders, which is a great new uh, video campaign that we're doing where we're interviewing uh, leaders of the, the mining industry. So t- stay tuned for that. I'll talk more about that later. But for the time being, Trish, please come and introduce your... Well, I'm delighted to introduce Mark Bristow. As everyone here knows, he orchestrated the merger of his wildly successful Rangold Resources with Barrick, which became effective on New Year's Day, and uh, which is probably the most fascinating development in the gold mining industry since 2006, when Barrick took over Rivo Placer Dome. Uh, And not only that, but since since this earlier this year, you've done a joint venture with Newmont, um, which was pretty spectacular. People thought that it made a lot of sense for a long time, but you were able to do it. So kudos to you. And I think there's some news that you had yesterday with uh, Acacia Mining, but we'll get to that. But first, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Mark. He grew up in a rural farming community in, in uh, South Africa, about 160 kilometers north of Durban. He started studying at university, but he took agriculture at first, but then he took an elective in geology and loved it. And he did his master's in um, geology and then did his thesis on the uh, Bushveld complex and turned it into a doctorate. And at Rangold, of course, he and his team discovered five world-class gold deposits in three different countries and built five mines. So what some of you might not know about Mark is that he comes from a large family, five kids, five boys, and three of them studied geology. So I was wondering, what happened there? Why did three of you take to geology? Well, all different geology. <laughs> the, uh, the eldest is a diamond geology expert on ultramafics, and he was an academic, still an academic, really, by heart, and uh, always been in the mining, uh, the, the diamond mining side of things. The brother between the two of us, Keith, is a physicist but started with geology, uh, ended up with physics works for Syro and Townsville in Australia, been there his whole life and then myself, and then the two younger brothers were agriculture, and then an MBA, and the youngest is the bean counter, who did uh, 
BCom uh, uh, chartered accounting. My father and mother were just normal folk. My dad was a electrician on the railways. My mom was a secretary at the school and they both felt that we should have a better chance at getting somewhere than they did. That's how it worked out. Another thing you might not know about Mark is that in 2009, he took his two boys on a motorcycle trip from Cape Town to Cairo, and that started a tradition. He's done four Trans-Africa motorcycle trips since then. Uh, I think the last one was three years ago. You did 7,500 kilometers from the west coast to the east coast of Africa, and all four of his motorcycle trips, he's raised over $5 million for charity. So my question is, what drives you to do these, and are you going to do any more? You know, everyone thinks that Africa is sort of a backwater. And Africa is a fantastic place, and it's got so much to offer people. And whichever way you cut it, Africa is going to be an important player in the global economy. It's just, I guess the question is when. You know, it's endowed with natural resources. It's going to have the more people under 25 than any other continent in the world by 2025. It's wireless, so the young people are much more versatile and um, entrepreneurial. You know, its endowment is enormous, and, and it's, it's not that scary. So the, my objective was to, first of all, teach my children about Africa, because, and every time we went on one of these trips, I took businessmen from South Africa who thought they were African, and that they knew Africa and they had no clue. And also, we were able to showcase the fact that you can travel through Africa without armed guards or being armed, get where you wanted to go. We were not accosted once. We didn't lose a single thing. We got all the way through, and we went from Cape to Cairo, the first trip, and then around the top down to Abidjan, and then Abidjan to Cape Town, and then we tried the real one, which was from Mombasa to the Congo River mouth. That was a bit wild. Um, you know, Congo's the only place where Google Maps doesn't work. <laughs> and it taught my children uh, this thing about, you know, I always say in business, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And the same in life, you know. If you have a purpose and a destination, you generally get there. And, uh, and so that's what I wanted to do is to introduce my children to the fact that you know, there's nothing that, if you set your mind to, you can't achieve. I had the pleasure of uh, writing a profile with Mark uh, a few years ago, and you said that waste, uh, sleep was a waste of time. He was joking, but sort of half-joking. You do seem to be in perpetual motion. Uh, he's competed in 13 marathons in South Africa, specifically the 90-kilometer Comrades Marathon. And he's also competed 11 times in the longest canoe race in Africa, it's 120 kilometers long, and it involves portages, sometimes as long as eight kilometers, with your canoe on your back. So obviously, Mark, you have a competitive streak. You've got a, a love for endurance, which I guess sets you up pretty well for this industry. I mean, that's, I used to tell my children, and I still do, that sleep is a waste of time. And you know, A complete irrele irrelevant story is my son, my youngest son, who's now you know, a very smart uh, businessman down in Miami. He came to you one day and he said, yeah, Dad, how do you get so much time? How, much, how do you do stuff that you do? I said, Craig, if you wake up before 11 o'clock in the morning, watch how you double the day. 
<laughs> then he did an MBA. Now I phone him at six of them while he's always up. <laughs> and I guess that's the point as well about life. Everyone knows. I mean, long distance running is a passion. I don't do it anymore, but I used to. And it's a, you know, it's like business. Again, same point. If you plan your way, and it's a, it's a long game, like gold mining, like any mining. You allocate capital properly. You have a plan. You you know where you're going. You're prepared. You generally get there. Okay. So getting back to business and and the gold business. Now you've been a critic of the gold mining industry for many years. You said it's undisciplined, poor return on invested capital. But Rand Gold was always the outlier. You know, you always focused on the geology. It was always about the ore body. And your guiding principle was that an ore body had to have at least 3 million ounces and an internal rate of return of 20% at a long-term gold price of $1,000 an ounce. Now that you're the bigger company, Barrick, with assets all over the world and its own challenges, you know, how do you see that going forward? How do you, do you have your different strategic filters than you did at Rangel? So we've introduced, as part of this transaction, tier one assets, which is effectively around the top 10 assets in the world. When you look at them, your 15% return at 1,200 is, you know, a lot of people in this industry don't know what it takes to make a 15% return. Uh, because if you have a 7 million ounce plus gold deposits that produces 400,000 ounces, and you have to invest $2 billion to bring it to account, to reach 15% return, you've got to have $570 all in sustaining cost. So to get down up to 20 when you've got very big assets is, is difficult, but it's still a d- discipline, and you know anyone who can deliver 15% real after tax for Canadians, because you always use before tax numbers, it's a world-class asset, and we need more of those. And the principle of any mining is if you know your revenue is in your ore body. And so if you start with a high-quality ore body, it doesn't have to be high-grade. It can be lower-grade in a pit with no strip ratio. But if it's a high-quality ore body, you'll always end up with a better return. If you start with a really underwhelming ore body, you're never going to make any money. You know, you're going to do what the, the industry is very good at. You're going to do really reasonably well in the peaks of the cyclical market, and you're going to go bust in the trough. And so that's the point is that, and again, you can't, you can't get there if you don't have partnerships with your various stakeholders, whether they are governments or investors, fund managers. And I've always said that, you know, we're in an industry which is, by very nature, looks to long-term decisions, long-term money, long-term partnerships. But everyone that's supporting it is driven by this obsession of instant gratification. So you end up with a a busted flush when you have that sort of combination of interests in an industry like ours. And Barrick has mixed assets, and you've said recently that you're thinking about trying to divest at least a billion and a half of them. Can you give us any color on on that? Yeah, you know, I I always talk about a value curve, so it's very important in, in mining as well. The value curve is like an S. So the flat bottom part of the S is where you create value, and you always create value at that part, and, it, and it's generally geology, but certainly M&A activity can create similar value if you're disciplined and you're opportunistic in acquiring that. 
And then that vertical part of the S is where you really have the optionality, the positive optionality, whether it's the ability to exploit the delta on the gold price, or more importantly, you have geological potential that you can continue to add your returns. And that's the driver, that's the difference between return on capital and IRR, mm-hmm. internal rear return, is that can you constantly replace the ounces you mine after spending the capital? And then you've got the flat part of the curve, the S, which is not a bad place to be, but there you only get the, the gold delta. And our view as a, as a tier one company focused on high quality assets, although there's value in that part of the S curve, we don't want to have assets there. Uh, we, we think because they require much more attention, it's like a factory. And so it's better to put them in hands of people who are going to put the effort in to make sure that you are absolutely optimum in its uh, production operational side of things. And that's, so that for us is an encore area. And we don't have, I mean, apart from the closing assets, which have liabilities and we have to manage them, our collection of inventory sitting up at the top part of that S-curve is still very profitable. Um, but it makes sense for us to bring it to account. And again, we want to bring them to account with the cooperation of the, our host countries and fi- not just selling it to, the, to anybody who walks past. Because you know, we plan to be there in the next decades and all our assets sit in world-class geological addresses so you don't want to burn your, your license to operate. So you said that the first quarter went really well, and you were going to produce between 5.1 and 5.7 million ounces this year and do that for the next five years. How are you going to maintain that pace, given it's harder and harder to find better grade you know, we've deposits? Taken, we've taken, I mean, it was a fantastic quarter, and you know, the point that I said, the excitement, what drove me and convinced John Thornton was this strategy of collecting the majority of the top tier assets in the industry in one organization. We brought two, Barricade three, and another one in the form of Gold Rush, or in fact two, Turquoise Ridge and Gold Rush, and then Valadera, which has the chance to go get there. Uh, with Nevada, we have four in. With the Nevada joint venture, we now have four because we've moved Turquoise Ridge into tier one uh, with the combination of uh, Twin Creeks. And so, you know, we're going to end up with uh, more than half of the top 10 assets in the world. And you combine that with great people, and Barrick undoubtedly has the, the best leadership team in the industry, and they're all young. They're all in their 40s, which is abnormal in this industry, uh, and younger. You know, our mining engineers are 30s. And they, you need that if you want to do automation because, you know, 50-year-old engineers just, like me, I'm scared of automation, but uh, my son is not. <laughs> and, and so you combine the best assets with great people. There's not much to do to deliver quality returns because it comes naturally. And I think you see the first sign of that in quarter one, but it was, you know, there's a lot of costs in there as we cleaned up the organization. And, uh, and I've got no doubt in the fullness of this year, you'll see the real benefits coming of the reshaping of the organization and the focus on you know, delivery, profitability, high quality. Mm-hmm. Because we've moved Barrick from, 
You know, John, when he took over in 2015, he, he had $12.5 billion of debt. That's when I first met him, and I suggested to him that if he wants to fix this, he should probably employ a few people who know how to fix it. Done it before. But he, had, he sweated the assets, unlike most of the mining industry would tend to just listen to their investment bankers uh, and issue paper. So he sweated the, the debt down and he didn't issue a lot of paper. He sold some assets at, at a very good price. So Barrick became driven by high grading, effectively, looking at the top-line cash flow. What happens then is that you, get, you become lazy on the efficiency side because it's easy just to go, and, and Barrick's got great assets, so it's easy to do that. So what I've done is I've moved the focus of management down to the ore body and optimized the ore body. And so what you do then is you focus on costs. You keep the margin. The margin take is the same because in a, in a grade-focused uh, mine, you lose sight of the costs. So you, it's just an, another phase of, of mining, and that's what we're doing. And we're comfortable we'll get to the, the same margin and then you extend the life, and that impacts the IRR, and it impacts the return on your investment, and so the whole thing works. Can we talk about the joint venture a bit more in Nevada? You've talked about maybe replanning some of the mines to optimize them? You know, a part of that move from high-grade or top-line focus to all-body focus is replanning, and that comes with geotechnical, geology. So... All the mines in the barrack, legacy barrack, have now got new managers, new general managers, all of them. Some of them we've just rearranged to give people a new chance. Some of them are new completely. Some of them are promotions. All the mines now have mineral resource managers, and we have planning, and we have geotechnical engineers, because that's the way you, you optimize an ore body. And so, and you know, Nevada has been renowned for bad rock conditions, but it's also variable. And so what we've found is Nevada has generally focused on the lowest uh, risk. So design the mines for the worst possible rock conditions, whereas they are variable. So if you go in and, and model properly, and you know, we're coming from deep level mines in South Africa, that's where we all grew up. We understand that. You go in there, model it properly, you can change the mining method and where the, the rock stands up and it's silicified, for example, as it is in many parts of Nevada, you can do long-hole open stoping, which, which changes the whole cost of mining. And that's what we're busy doing, and we're going to do the same with Newmont. So, you know, there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of excitement, and a great career for young engineers who get involved in that sort of thing. What's a reasonable target for return on equity at Barrick over the next couple of years? I think in the first quarter it was about 2%. I don't do that because, I mean, in fact, very few people in the mining industry actually know how to calculate that. Because my focus is internal real rate of return, long-term return on, based on your capital. Because, and I'll tell you why. Once you commit to building a mile, a mine, you fix the capital. Therefore, people who say, oh, the gold price is going down, I'm going to cut capital, that's like, that's like illogical. So therefore, you've got to have a long-term plan with a long-term gold price, and you've got to make sure that your capital is appropriately invested against the ore body. And if you do all that, and you've got a high-quality ore body, 
you will deliver the returns. And I'll give you an example. Rand Gold used twenty and thousand dollar gold. Well, it actually uses a, a model gold price based on input costs. And we we didn't make twenty percent return because you can't because mining comes with risk, particularly in Africa, and it's a three million ounce. You know, three and you know we when we like Kibali, it's it's effectively fifteen percent, but at a thousand dollars. Because you screw up, <laughs> and the gold price goes up and down. But over time, because the gold price goes higher than a thousand, and it's never gone below a thousand, which suggests maybe we, we should move it up a bit, you actually do achieve the twenty percent long-term return. And and we have Tongan, we've definitely done that. Goncato, we have Lulo, we're short of. Kabali, we're running at, and we run it always back to the original investment. We're running at about fifteen percent. You had some news out yesterday about Tanzania. Do you want to talk about that? I can't talk about that, oh, okay. unfortunately. I'm under the uh, careful and beady watch of the UKLA takeover panel. Okay. And I have a chaperone in the audience that is making sure that I don't go off beast. And he'll be very pleased to have that. <laughs> okay. Well, since we're Canada-focused, you seem... Barrick's a little light on Canadian assets. Exactly. Does that matter? Yes. Yeah, Canada, I mean, for me, there are two things. You know, I modeled Rand Gold Resources on the original barrack way back in the startup with Bob Smith and Peter Monk and, and the whole concept of building an alternative to South Africa when the, the rest of the world sanctioned South African mining. And it was all about f- returns. And Africa, uh, Canada has, has been a, an icon of entrepreneurship in the mining industry, but it's it's running the risk of becoming irrelevant because it's built on promotion and short-termism. And I believe it needs a reinvention, just like our industry does. And, you know, when I went to Hemlo, what shocked me in, in the whole of Canada is that the young, the young engineers go to university and they don't get a crack in the mining industry. Um, and we need to change that. And I say we as Canadians, being sort of quasi <laughs> uh, and, uh, and also when you saw the, the sort of hysterics around uh, the Barrick Randgold merger, I don't think that's appropriate for a global leader in mining, which it still is, by the way. And so when you look at it and you look at Canada and its mining history and Barrick, it's underinvested in Canada. And what's interesting is that, again, I think Canada, like we've seen in Australia can still deliver great deposits if they changed focus from prospecting to exploration. And so I'm excited about some of the opportunities. We've got a dedicated team focused on generating new opportunities in Canada and we'll and you know I don't think there's any reason for us to back off on that strategy. What do you think Barrick's gonna look like in the next five or ten years and the gold industry in general? So, my view is that Barrick will probably be one of the few that have delivered on their plans. <laughs> and the industry is in decline. You know, we've got ourselves into a really tight spot because we haven't invested in exploration in our future. And so now, when you look at the average life of mine, it's less than the time it takes to discover and develop a world-class asset. You know, the the supply side of our industry is very tight. The demand 
side, and I and I disagree with uh, some of the talk uh, presenters here today, and that gold is an inelastic industry, just like everything else. When we overdid the hedging and dumped twice as much gold into the market that we were actually producing, the gold price went to 255. We stopped doing it, it started going up. The Chinese started buying gold, it went even further. Then all we did is we took lower and lower grades and produced more and more gold and we put a, a, a roof, a ceiling on the, on the gold price and we've driven it down since then. To a point now where we are staring a tightening in the market. You know, this world has never been more chaotic economically than it is today. And we've seen central banks particularly, and people don't want to have to transact through New York anymore, and that controls any transaction in the world. And so people are searching for alternate reserve currencies, and gold will play a natural role in that, as it has done since the beginning of time. So... You know, I'm very bullish about the gold market, and I intend to have a business with a large margin to benefit on that. And so I think the industry is going to be great. I think the consolidation we've seen in the last while is, is important. We've got to become relevant. All our funds, our, all our investors get more and more money with uh, more and more challenges to try and invest them in our industry and have some sort of relevant exposure in their portfolio. And so it, it, we have to be bigger. We have to be more focused on returns if we're going to attract investment in our industry. And I think we'll see that, as everyone has recognised. It's important to work towards maintaining our relevance. And I would then add, Canada has a huge role to play on it. It's, it's got the best mineral diplomacy network in the world. It influences emerging markets. It's got so much to offer the industry. We just need courage and commitment to continue to do that. Apart from Barrick, are there any other mining companies that you would invest in? Look, if I was going to invest in a mining company, I'd buy it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, one last question. Do you think it's important that a mining company be led by a geologist or at the very least a mining engineer? I mean, if you look at the success stories, there's you, there's, you know, Ross Beattie, who's a geologist, there's Lucas Landin, and of course, some would argue that Barrick, at its heyday, historically was under the guidance of Bob Smith, who was a mining engineer. Yeah, I think the important thing is you've got to be hard-assed with a long-term vision, (laughs) and usually that comes with being an engineer of some sort. But I think it's very important that any decent mining company should have geologists and mining engineers at the top of their organisation. What I would advise against is you don't want too many of those in the board because this is the confusion in the industry. We confuse ourselves and we get you know, old mining engineers with antiquated views in a board setting trying to tell young, agile engineers how to run the mines in a modern world. And so I'm a great, and more and more as we've messed up in our industry, so fund managers who have never, by the way, run mines, keep telling us how to organize our industry. But what we need is top, visionary, disciplined 
global business people running our, overseeing us as managers and our board. You should be long on mining expertise in the company. And if you don't do what you say you're going to do repeatedly, then you shouldn't be running these companies. And I think that's the point about our industry is that we've got to get more real. And I mean, I come on this whole debate about employment and remuneration and that we, we, we want to run, you know, billion dollar, multi-billion dollar companies. And I see all this squabble over 10 million or 5 million. We want the best leaders in this industry to take the role of the, our companies and deliver massive returns and we should pay them for that and we should give young people the opportunity to aspire to be up there with the best to create wealth for our shareholders and, our, and themselves and, and I think if we do that and liberate ourselves, be more accountable, we will do better. Great. Well thank you so much, I know you're super busy so appreciate that. That does it for this episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the Yukon Mining Alliance. Check out their website at yukonminingalliance.ca and their Twitter feed at at investyukon. Please help out the podcast by liking it, sharing it, commenting on it, subscribing to it. All those things help raise the visibility of the podcast within the podcast universe there. That's it for now. Thanks and bye-bye.